0: that makes sense most of you have been in Sunday school and many of you have been in Sunday school and you've seen the all of this before but we wanted to give a chance for everybody to see it and see uh, how you have helped me uh, learn these things and that uh, I will tell you this this church right now is little has little. And it's just been awesome. And I praise the Lord for it. And this is going to be no difference. Right now, what we're going to be talking about this morning is impacting Cary, North Carolina. There are 165 men going through this very uh, project. They're using my paper for that as one of the main sources. So praise the Lord for that. But there are people in Colorado and people in uh, in Minnesota. All of them have been impacted by this. And you helped produce this product. Does that make sense to you? You helped me through the doctoral program. I would not have been able to do it without you. And I'm so thankful for you as a church body that did that. And... Um, I praise the Lord for what I have learned, but I'm, I'm a little gun-shy here. I don't know exactly how to express this, but um, my wife and I are taking a break from all this because it like, was insane. We literally had over 1,000 pages of information that we had gathered from all different areas to whittle down to 270 pages, and that's still a lot. Um, right now, we're not sure Peter Gaiman is going to maybe help us um, with the produ- production of a book, because the reality is, you can be as the greatest theologian in the world, but if you don't get this concept, it's worthless in a sense, in a sense. Because this world obviously is dying and going to hell, and it's going rather quickly. And it's because the church as a whole has adopted a secular view of vocation. If you don't believe me on that, um, before we start this, I want to set up some very important parameters. Number one, a vocation is not just what you do for a living. That, by the way, is a secular view. Although it is used for your living, it's still a secular view. Your vocation is what God has specifically called you to. And you will get this right away. Every one of you have been called to either be a male or a female, and neither the twain shall meet and be confused. Obviously, the world has gone nuts. And the reason they have gone nuts is the church has not been implement, in, integrating their faith into everyday life. Instead, as a whole, we have been reclused into our nice little building, in our nice little home school, in our nice little, and you name the Christian whatever you call it, and we've separated ourselves from the world. God's design for Christians is to be in the world to rub shoulders with that world and influence that world for Christ. And when we fail to do that, of course the world is going to go to hell. True? And I'm using hell not as a swear word. I'm using hell as an actual place. And it is an actual place. So that is the essence of the theology of vocation. So there is not a one person in here who does not fit this. It doesn't mean just your job. That's part of it, but that's not the whole thing. It's who you are, why you're, I mean, all these things that you are, a dad, a husband, a boy, a girl, a a, a baker, a a, a bodybuilder even, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) The reality is, we all have been given a vocation. What Joshua just read was, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, Colossians 3.23 as working for the Lord and not for human masters. So many of us want to go, we have to, we feel like we've got to go and work for the man. Listen, there's only one man you should be working for and that's God. Now, that means when you're at the coal plant or when you're at the Walmart plant or (laughs) literally plant, (laughs) if you're at the job site, wherever you are, the post office, whatever you are doing, you're working for the Lord by serving other people. Do you realize I want? I want to see that mail. Cuz I do. I need to be served that way. I can't come into town and get it all the time. I need to get warm in the winter time. I need groceries at Walmart sometimes. We are serving people. That is the whole goal of a Christian. Serve people and love people. Why do we do that? Because we love God and we want to serve Him. And that is the way God has designed us to serve Him, is by serving people and loving them. And Colossians 3, very clear about that. To be honest with you, I think 99% of all believers have a secular and wrong view of vocation. I didn't quite get this. I I did grow up as a young man and, and, and was a hard worker. I have a very strong work ethic. My wife would probably complain too strong. <laughs> the reality is, though, what I didn't know is when I became a pastor, I thought, you know, this is super hard, this is super tough, and nobody knows the trouble I see. Right? Right? The reality is when we came to Grand Rapids to start this church 21 years ago, We're going on 22 because I think the thing's coming up here in fall. Did we start? Do you remember? Is that about right? I go to my guy that remembers all things. (laughs) But the reality is, as soon as we got here, I, I, I did odd jobs, or I called them odd jobs. I was bivocational. Then by probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I started a business and things started changing in my life, literally. At one moment, we had five different families in our church that were a result of working in their home with them. And I clearly realized every job I do is a ministry to God. Every job. And I embrace it. And becoming a bivocational minister, if you will, bivocational pastor, basically I became an undercover boss. I saw what you see every week. And frankly, pastors don't have a clue. And you'll see that as we go through. They think they've got the greatest and highest and wonderful and hardest job in the world. There's a word for that. I really can't pronounce it well, but does it? (laughs) They have no idea what the struggle you guys go through in our work outside the church. This is like a little piece of heaven. So, that's what spurred me on to this and Without further ado, Justin Martyr is one of the early church fathers. Oh, it's a battery's dead. Yeah, that's really important.
1: You know how to do that? I, do that.
0: <laughs> I threw him under the bus. I'm sorry. <clears throat> is this one picking me up okay or not? Okay. Justin Martyr is an early church. We call him early church fathers. That means he was like in the between 100 and 400 AD or sometimes up to 600, 800 AD, somewhere in that that realm. Justin Martyr realized the issue. He says, listen, to God, nothing is secular. How many many would say at one time, and don't raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I think everybody in this building probably at one time said, I work my secular job at this. The reality is Christians do not have secular jobs. I'm gonna give you because I have no idea what I'm doing. You are the man. Can you hear me now? Am I there? Oh A plus. Thank you. Bob gets embarrassed easily. (laughs) I love him dearly. So Justin Martyr was absolutely emphatic. To God, nothing is secular. And to Christians, nothing is secular. Nothing is. Not even the world itself. Why? Is not the world and every believer in here God's workmanship? Absolutely. And secondly, so God designed it, God built it, built it. And secondly, because we are conducting our argument so as to meet unbelievers. In other words, we're serving and loving other people by sharing with them what God's done in your life, of how you can actually give them verses that'll encourage them in something. All these things that we can help people with, you have answers they do not. And the problem is we, don't have the, we do have the answers, but we don't have the voice or the ears, because we're not outside talking to the world about God and what He's done for us. I'm not saying you've got to get the exact plan of salvation and give it to everybody every time. That's not what I'm talking about. You love and serve, and then you have an ear to give the gospel. Does that make sense? I'm so tired of you know, be saved or be damned. That's your choice. Okay, I'm done talking to you. What in the world?? <laughs> What in the world? Do you care about people? People want people to love them. Jesus did that. He loved them so much, He healed them. Spent time with them, where they went, talked with them. Justin Martyr says it very well. So this is, this is nothing new. The theology of vocation is nothing new. But it has been totally lost. Christianity, unfortunately, is on the decline. of Christians have a biblical worldview. That's the Barna 2021. Here we are two years later, is it better? Probably not. 20% of Christians do not believe in the God of the Bible, Pew, 2018. They call themselves, these are self-professing Christians, and they don't even believe the God of the Bible. 66 of Americans. Why is this happening? Because 66 of Americans (coughs) view Christian pastors as unethical. As unethical. That's one out of every three people. (coughs) That's two out of every three people. Two out of every three people in America Look at a pastor's unethical. When I read that, do you know how embarrassed I was walking in town? Does that make sense? There's three people. Two of them hate me. Not that I want them to love me, but I, I w- I, that'd be okay too. But the point is, we've lost our voice. I will ask you this. In politics, have governors and presidents and Congressmen and senators lost their voice because of their ethicalness or lack thereof. People just, all I hear is wah, 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 wah right? That's with all of them, <laughs> basically. 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. That's Barna 2021. So we have a problem in the church. And the reason we have a problem in the church is because we have a problem in the pulpit. Does that make sense? That's all I'm trying to draw the conclusion of. It starts at the leadership and the leadership has a problem. Results? The second largest religious group in North America. Who do you think they are? The second largest group, religious group in North America. not going to believe this. Because of what I just showed you, They're the nuns, the agnostics, and the atheists. Second largest religious group in America. How many think we have a problem? We have a large problem. Why? The church is not in the world, and many are of the world. Say, what? That sounds like a Bible verse, like in reverse. Yes. Because it is. The Bible says we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But the church has reclused into their nice little den and their nice little Christian stuff. We even have our own Christian softball leagues. Why? Why? How are you? And then, and those are even bad. How many of you have ever been to a church softball league? You don't want to be there. I'm telling you, the language that is used and the unethicalness and the yelling at the ref, they need to get their noses punched in. They literally do. It's ridiculous. Oh, but it's Christian. Stop calling it Christian, please. Matter of fact, do us a favor, call it atheists and they love us. I get a little emotional about it because it ticks me off. I've seen it 20 years ago when I was uh, playing softball. Literally, praise the Lord. In Wapaka, we, we played with everybody else. There wasn't a church softball league. It was wonderful. But please remember this. The church... As right now is not in the world, and many are of the world. The salt has lost its savor and the light is burning dimly. How many agree with that? That's exactly what's going on. No question. The church is relegated to the corner of society. Here's what that means. In philosophical era of the Greeks, they would get to get the other philosophize, right? Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, those guys, they would, they would go back and forth and banter back and forth about ideas that they know. Well, we have an idea that we know, the word of God. Anybody who could not debate in those public debating sessions in the public square would be relegated to the corner and silence because no one wants to listen to them. That's exactly where the church is today. Whether they don't want to debate or they don't want to serve and love other people, I don't know. But they're relegated to the corner and nobody's listening. And it's because we don't have a theology, a correct theology of vocation. It's so bad that a National Geographic article came out, said it this way. As the secular millennials grow up and have children of their own, the only Sunday morning tradition they may pass down is the one everyone in the world can agree on, brunch. Meaning there's no, there's no point to church. They're relegated to the corner. They can believe what they want, they're, they're over there. Doesn't matter. We can live our life the way it is. That's exactly what's going on in America today. I'm telling you. The church has lost its influence in the world because it's reclused out of the world. And that's wrong. That's not God's plan. If that was God's plan, He would have taken you home the day you got saved. But you're here and you're here for a purpose. Why? Well, what is the church discipling for? And I will say, I'm totally dumb on this. We have to figure this out. What are we discipling for? Are Christians imaging Christ in all of life? Or do we disciple to make Sunday school teachers, which is a good thing, or to make preachers, which is a good thing, but what about just regular people like all of us In our faith, integrating our faith into our jobs. Amen. Maybe that discipling we need. I'm not saying we get rid of the rest of it, don't get me wrong. Why am I saying this? Because God has only given us a lot of time. We have a short time here. Some of you have had 80 years here or more. Some of you have had 12 or less. The point is. God has a lot of time for us, and as you become an adult, it's more like this. The church takes up, the actual reality of percentage is 3% of your time at best. So if the church is discipling for stuff within the church, they're discipling for 3% of the Christian's life. Work is 65% of your life. How many think that would be a good thing to disciple for? How do I integrate my my faith into my job? How does that work? And then other stuff, play, leisure, vacations, whatever those are, 30%. So 95% of your life, believer, is outside the church how do we act outside the church how do we live outside the church how do we integrate our faith into what we do outside the church how many think those are important that's what the theology of vocation is so we're gonna take just for a second work why does the world work the world works to earn a living is there anything wrong with that What if that is the only way, reason we work? If the only reason we work is to earn a living, is it gonna come to an end, and you know when it's gonna come to an end? Right, when you got the right pot size behind you, right? I mean like money pot. I was seeing a lot of, I'm not sure what you're talking about, so I had to verify. When you have got that secure money, then you can go, right? How about material wealth? I can drive a Lambert. Who would ever want to drive a Lamborghini? Okay, I'm looking at my son. Okay. Professional recognition. Here I am, look at me. Positional status. Do you know that preachers believe that they're the top four of all people on this earth as most important and hardest jobs? Success. Fulfill self. Power. Legacy. I want my name on a building. Here's the reality. Are any of these in and of themselves sinful? Necessarily. Not necessarily, but I will tell you this. Do all of them find their foundation and their their starting point in pride? Or most of them? Certainly. What if the reason we work is to love and serve God? Is that a motivation that is totally pure? Absolutely. If you went to work in order to love and serve God, would your work be different than it is now? Probably, that's the point. How has the adaptation, so in essence, the world, let's just be honest, that was a secular worldview of work. Does the church have that same secular worldview of work most of the time? Yes or no? Sure. So how has the adaptation of a secular worldview Regarding work, impacted the church ministry in the modern world. I'll give you an example. Christian comes in, oh, praise God, it's Friday. I get to go play tomorrow. Okay, so many of us have probably said that. The reality is, this is a great day to serve the Lord today, this Friday. And I can't wait to serve him again Monday. Is there a different attitude there? A different motivation there? The one motivation is yourself, right? The other motivation, motivation is God. Say, well, that's hard. Yeah, it's hard, especially if you don't really love the Lord. But if you love the Lord, it's easy. Before we, we talked about how that we are not in the world, but we've become of the world. The question here is, how, have, how are we now acting? How do we react to worldly things that are happening around us as a Christian. How do we act? How do we do we have the same attitude as the world? Well, let me show you one. How many remember this? May 29th, 2020. This was the second largest destructive period of local unrest in US history, second only to the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Was it wicked? Was it horrible? Did they react inappropriately? Well, here's what a pastor wrote while these things were going on. There are nearly 1.2 million hunters in Minnesota and Wisconsin, wink, wink. In other words, from northern Minnesota, don't you dare come up here, I will shoot you to protect my property. That's a pastor. Let me ask you, does he have a true biblical worldview? Now listen, is it all right to protect your family and your biblically? Absolutely. But your property? I remember of a verse. If a man wants your coat, give him your hat too. (laughs) Whatever the verse is. How many understand what I'm saying? It the property means nothing. This was put on so the whole world could see. I will tell you, people would look at that and say, there's another pastor again. Don't want anything to do with that guy. He just wants to kill people that he doesn't get his way. We do the same thing with this. The CDC, as of January through June of 2021, says that 46% Well, let me start with this, I'm sorry. One in four high schoolers identify as LGBTQ. And there's more letters added on now. One out of four. What is that? 25%? A lot! Here's the deal. All they hear from the Christians is, You guys are idiots. You guys are jerks. Get rid of them. Kill them. Listen, is this wrong? Absolutely wrong. Absolutely. But we have to learn how to serve and love them and not participate and uphold the sin. Amen. They need Jesus Christ. And listen, here's what they're seeing. Here's what the world sees. The world sees us calls that we call these people, you know, gay, lesbian, and and then wicked words, right? And they hear it from Christians, and they sit there and say, you Christians are a bunch of bigots. They're right in that. Here's the deal. They are in sin. They need help just like anybody else does. Because God helped us in our wicked sin, we should be helping them in their wicked sin. Not accepting it, not applauding it, not upholding it, not promoting it, but helping them because I will tell you this, we, need to ha- we had better be ready because if one in four right now are that way, it's only gonna get worse. Secondly, there is gonna be a major problem when these kids become older people and they don't know where to turn to. The last person they're gonna turn to is a bigot. They need to turn to the church. They need help. They're going to have to figure out, now that my body parts are gone, how can I actually be what I was supposed to be? That, That breaks my heart, that I won't be able to be there and stand there and say, listen, this is what God says. Let me help you through this. Does that make sense? I am not advocating this whatsoever. You should know me by now. But we have to learn how to discuss it with people. But we've left the church. The church has left the. The, the, the only reason this is all happening is the church is recluse back in their corner. Now, we talked about being in the world, but not of the world. In the world means it, being, being the image of Christ for a dying world. That's what being in the world means, right? Being of the world means acting like the world. Here's what has happened. Because the church is reclused inside of itself, church membership is dropping like a rock, right? How are we gonna fix this? Well, we can fix this by becoming more like the world because everybody likes that and we'll help the people come to church because they're gonna get what they want. Teachers having itching ears? Well, let me show you what took place this last year in Oklahoma, I don't remember the exact name of the church, oh yes, Transformation Church of Tulsa, Oklahoma, you can look it up yourself. This was Easter, this is how they worshiped the Lord, think about being in the world and not of it, they were of the world, 100%. 100%. Amen? See, their church way is not working. So let's replace it with something the world loves so they come. And we edited this really bad. I mean, the stuff that's on there is ridiculous. Young ladies talking about their body parts publicly on stage for the glory of the Lord. It's that wicked Here's the reality, that, man, that pastor was, had a pushback from other pastors, you think? Do you know what he said? He went on YouTube and said, listen, I know all of you want going to push me back, but here's the deal, 269 kids got saved that day, I don't know, how about you? Saved from what? Saved to what? If that's not bad enough, you can every single year you can go to the Episcopalian church in St. John's. It's up northeast United States somewhere and you can dance with devils the whole day for the glory of Jesus. You say, well, that's extreme. You know, it is extreme. But let me ask you, is the church becoming more like Christ or more like the world? It's an honest question. The question that's even more near and dear to my heart, because these are extremes and that's easy to call those out, here's what the hard part is. When young people do not understand that they are valuable to the church and that they have a ministry wherever they go, if they don't understand that, they feel worthless. This is from, a pa- this is from one of my relatives who grew up basically on a pastor's home. Here's what she said there just didn't seem to be any room for someone who didn't marry a pastor, someone who couldn't at least pay piano or sing. She doesn't go to church anymore. Why? Because we've elevated the pastor and the leaders and just count the people as, you know, dumb sheep that are just there to support us. That is wickedness to the nth degree, and it is a secular, it's a secular worldview, and wrong, dead wrong. Do you think we got problems? Where's the church in all this? I will tell you, the church is falling apart. Will the church die before Jesus wants it to be gone? No. But it isn't in very good shape right now. And the reason it's not in very good shape, one of the reasons is, Because we've adapted a secular worldview of this life. As the modern church has adapted and implemented a secular view of vocation, an orthodox theology of vocation must be regained, both for individual Christians to please God in daily activity and for the church to minister effectively as God intends. We must regain a biblical. Theology of vocation. Amen. And we've lost it. We've lost it. We need to regain it. How bad is this, Pastor? This is just no big deal, right? No. How many of you ever heard of uh, A.W. Tozer? Tozer says it this way This error is so widespread. That means a secular view, a Christian having a secular worldview. It is so widespread that one feels all alone when he tries to combat it. Do you know how all alone? I will tell you. You want to know? I'll tell you. Here we go. I spent three years studying this, asking pastors about this, pastors of thousands of people. Do you, can you help me? Can you give me a resource for a biblical theology of vocation? Blank stares looking at me saying, I don't even know what you're talking about. In three years, I've had four people understand what I'm talking about. And all four of them, Pastor Graf, this is good. This is awesome. You need to do something about this because no one knows what you're talking about. And it's the death nail to the church. He's right. He's dead right. Tozer had it right. They so widespread that one feels all alone when he tries to combat it. I get it. It has acted as a kind of dye to color the thinking of religious persons and has colored the eyes as well so that it is all but impossible to detect its fallacy. We're just like everybody else. To be honest with you, it's very easy to tell you, explain to you, how many would you, don't raise your hand, but think with me. (coughs) How many believe that the church is following the world a hundred yards back through the ages? This is why. This is why. We Christianize the secular mentality. Does that make sense? That's exactly what's happened. How do we see this? What what does the Bible have to say with this? I've just chosen a couple of them. Korah. Korah was a man that was keeping and storing and protecting and moving all the stuff inside the temple. That was his job. Let me ask you, is that an important job? Absolutely, that was his job. We find it in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, 16, 1. Unfortunately, he got mad, and he said, Moses, what gives you the right to lead us? You've got a more important job. Your job is better. I want your job. Literally, that's what he was advocating. Well, Moses says, are are you seeking for the priesthood also? Hello? (laughs) That's kind of sarcastic, is it not? If you want my job, you want the priesthood also? You're doing probably one of the most important jobs there are, and yet you want a better job in your mind? Or do you also want the priesthood? We'll give you that too. Well, he didn't say give him that too, but how many understand? Well, he kept pushing them. Korah and 15,000 people died because of his envy of someone else's giftedness. Listen folks, who gives God, who gives people their giftedness? That's God's choice, that is not our choice. God gives us who we are. It is not our choice to change our vocation. It is God's. Did you hear that? It is not our choice to change our sex. It's God's choice. That's exactly what I'm saying. That is a vocation. That is what you've been called to. By the way, young ladies, revel in that ladiness. Amen, pastor. Praise God. Okay? You're going to not say anything? I have to. Men? Ugh. Have you talked to the males today? Hi. Oh. What was that? Hi. Can you get a little bit more breathy and feminine with that, please? No. <laughs> How many know what I'm talking about? Guys, revel in your manhood. Amen. Biblical manhood. By the way, there's a book out there, it's been out there for a long time, and it's a mainstay solid book Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Phenomenal book. If you don't have it, you need it. I think it was, was it Grudem and Piper, the two that wrote on that. I can't remember. Regardless, excellent book. All right. <clears throat> Embrace God's particular calling and serve him with complete abandon. I don't have this on here, but there's a man named Peter that did just that. Peter came over to... to here's, here's Peter. He's with all of his guys fishing. They come to the side with all their, all their boats and their fish and their nets and everything there. And God comes over, Jesus comes over and says, hey, I want you to come and follow me. Do you know what he did? You know, I'm making okay a life here with my fishing. I'm not going to follow you. No, with complete abandon, he followed Jesus. I don't care what vocation you are. Even if it's his, it is, in, in, when I grew up in Rochester, it was dissecting people. Literally. Even if you're doing that, do it for the glory of the Lord. By the way, they were at the Mayo Clinic so that they can, what? Find cures for different things. Find problems where they are. Some of my dearest friends were that. Uh, Lowell, do you remember Lowell Olson? His mom and dad both did. And by the way, because of all the chemicals and stuff, they died early because of cancer. Serving people. That's what they were doing, serving people. How about a man? Or how about a, how about, okay, you talk about a man named Korah. How about a woman? What about the valiant woman? Or the virtuous woman, as some call it. That whole thing is an acrostic poem using the Hebrew alphabet. That means every letter of the alphabet is used, and then it's poetized. Does that make sense to you? Reality is, there's only one religious aspect to her whole life. Do you know what? She feared God. She feared God. She wasn't a high priestess. She wasn't this uh, uh, elderess, whatever. None of that. She was a businesswoman. She provided. She served. She taught. She was a business, a homemaker. And the whole town knew her and respected her. Why? She did everything because she feared God. She feared God. Let me ask you, when's the last time? Oh, is the boss watching? I work with young people a lot every day. (laughs) We've had multiple young people, different young people. And it's funny to watch them. I came across, I'm not going to say any, I'm not going to give any names or nothing like that. So if you've worked, but here's the deal. I remember walking in next to my sander one day. I have two sanders, so it doesn't matter. And this kid was texting on his phone. He saw me. His face turned beet red. He threw his phone in his pocket. Can I do something? (laughs) How many understand that? Looking for the boss, right? Here's the reality: should that ever happen to a Christian at the place of work you're working at? Why? Because you're being a thief, right? You're being a thief. You're not being honest. The reality is, we unfortunately work like the secular world works, and it's wrong. <clears throat> not lazy, and was praised throughout the town. Nehemiah is another one. And by the way, there is a whole commentary on this. You can go from Genesis to Revelation and find the theology of vocation all the way through it unbelievable. They have a whole huge commentary on it. The reality is, Nehemiah called to be a cupbearer to the king. Do you know what a cupbearer is? What did the cupbearer do? He was in charge of the alcohol, right, the wine. But he also had to sip it before the king did. What they do is they pour a little bit on his, the back of his hand, I think, and they'd suck it up. If he didn't die, the king would eat it. How many cupbearers died, do you think? It was a very lethal job, but he accepted it his entire life. Prayer in Nehemiah says, Lord, listen, I just heard word that what happens in Jerusalem, please send somebody to fix all this problem. Don't we do that? Please send somebody to fix it. God said, He didn't say this, but in essence, it happened this way. You're the man. Nehemiah didn't say, hey, no, no, send somebody else. No, he said, you're the man. Why? You're the man that has the king's ear, the queen's ear. You're the man that hangs around them all the time. You're the man. And guess what? He was the man. He was the man. They trusted him. They gave him money. They sent him back. He rebuilt the walls in 52 days. These are supernatural things. Do you know what he did? Look at me. I build the wall. I'm talking about Trump. <laughs> did he do that? He didn't do that at all. He says, Look at me. I'm just the cupbearer. I am the cupbearer. He became the governor. Some people believe historically he became the governor in two different places at two different times. This man was a mighty man of God, and he was renumbered as the cupbearer. One of the most hardest jobs ever was, one, probably one of the least, ugh, I don't want to do that. Whatever your vocation is, embrace it with all that you have. Be like Peter, abandon everything and focus on it. Prayer. All right. Does trusting God mean turning to prayer or taking practical action? That's a really important thing because a lot of people, all believers, should believe in the sovereignty of God, right? But the sovereignty of God is not fatalism. Oh, I prayed about it, somebody else can do this. God will take care of it. He's sovereign. You know what? You might be that cog that he uses in that sovereignty. Amen? Step up and do something. Amen? Figure it out. Work it out. Don't just pray about it. Praying about it is extremely important. But do something about it. It's the sovereignty of God that was brought to your attention. For what reason? I think we have a lot of lazy Christians who just, yeah, you know, whatever. No, do something about it. You know, your friend is losing their father at your job site. Lord, please help them. Thoughts and prayers. Those are important. But also going up to him, putting your arm around him, say, Listen, man, I'm praying for you. I care for you. Is there something I can do to help you so that you can go work on this a little bit easier? Is that hard? Is that practically serving them and loving them? Absolutely. It's not just turning to prayer, although that's important. It's prayer and taking action. It's interesting in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. There were priests there because the temple had been there, right? It was full of priests. Guess what? Almost all of them worked. We'll get to that in a second. (laughs) My wife, when we were studying this, she found a French saying, there are three sexes in this world. See, they were woke all the way back then. Three genders, was it? Yes, three. How many know there are three? There's the male... I'm giving you a choice to say amen to that. There is a male, there is a female, ladies, and there's the pastor. That's literally what it said. What are they talking about? Well, you have to decipher what it's talking about. But usually what that was talking about is they don't do anything and they're feminine in what they do. I will say this: Jesus was no third gender. I get what they're saying, and in many cases, they're they're right. That's how they act, and they were celibate. That was the other problem. Everyone worked. Nehemiah chapter four, verse six. I got to get going. Hard history, biblical uh, biblical era. Hebrews. How did how did this happen historically? The Hebrews, the one who does not teach his son a trade is the one who teaches his son the art of highway robbery. This country needs to hear that. If you aren't being taught a trade, you're you're teaching your kid to be a cheat, a liar, and a thief. Because that's the only way you're going to live in this world. For not providing with a means of sustenance, the son will be forced to live on crime. The biblical arrow here is Skin-dead animals by the wayside, we read. Here's where we come into the pastor, what I just talked about. We read, and take the payment for it. In other words, do your work and do the best you can and take your payment for it. That's what work is. Amen? Do not say, oh, I'm a priest. I'm a man of distinction. And work is objectionable to me. You say, well, people don't say that, do they? Oh, they do. Matter of fact, let me give you a pastor who is one of the heads of the second largest denomination um, there is in America. This is what he said. People who work physically demanding jobs do so because they either cannot or will not deal with people's drama. He said that. You say, well, what is that talking about? Here's the deal. He said that the pastor is the hardest and most important job there is in all the world. There's four of them. A pastor, a president of the United States, a president of an institution, and a CEO of a health organization. And he says, all the people out here that aren't in the ministry like me, they just don't want to deal with drama or can't deal with drama. Now do you understand how wicked this is? Someone needs to punch him in the nose. They do. The problem is this is the attitude of many of them in the pulpit. The Hebrews said... Labor is no disgrace. Labor is a blessing. Matter of fact, one of them said, without the Torah, there is no labor, and without labor, there is no Torah. In other words, everybody works. Amen? Everybody works. Classical era, and we're going to go through this quick. It doesn't really matter anymore. Here's the deal. The classical era got so bad. The classical era is when the Greeks and the... um, the Greeks and the Romans, they believed that work was beneath them. And if you're going to be a Roman citizen or a Greek citizen, you need to leisure all the time. That's the whole goal is to be leisurous, to not do work. So what they had to do is they had to go out outside of their country and conquer peoples and bring them in as slaves to do their work. How many understand that? Well, the reality is, the slaves became just like human cattle. Some days, 10,000 slaves could be turned over in one day. 10,000! They then realized that if they're going to keep this leisurely life, well, they better those slaves better be treated as vanquished foes if they were to be forced into obedience. They had to make them, literally beat them up Treat them like a vanquished foe. Do you know what happened to the Roman and Greek culture, especially the Roman culture? The Roman culture leisured themselves out of existence because the slaves revolted and everything was destroyed. And that's what brought in the church as the head of the world at that time. How many follow that? That's a whole thousands years years uh, quickly. The medieval age... that's birth of the medieval age, and the medieval age put the clergy as the head of everybody, and everybody else were second-class people. The division of work into sacred and secular was the chief legacy of the Middle Ages, bequeathed to the world in the subject of work. In essence, me, my job is important. You are nothing. That is the mentality the Middle Ages gave us. Indulgences could not pay for penance, could, could not only pay for penance, but also relieve time in purgatory. This is also what the Middle Ages gave us. If you are going to be forgiven of your sin, well, then you have to pay the church in order to be forgiven of the sin. Indulgences, right? And for less time in purgatory, so you have to work in order for grace. Now, do you see why Catholics are always work oriented for grace? This is the very issue. This is what the medieval, let me ask you, by this time, do you think work has a good name or a bad name? It's bad because it's equated with sin. Matter of fact, most people today, if you ask them about work, oh, that was because of the fall. We have to work. No, not at all. Renaissance, Sir Thomas, we are running out of time quickly. I got to get through this. If, am I going too fast? Are you following this? Thomas More's Utopia. Finally, at the end of the Middle Ages, this guy wrote a book called Utopia, trying to keep, trying to treat everybody equally, so anybody can succeed as much as they want to succeed. How many? Does that make sense? The, the book was called Utopia. That was the first change of what was going to now be the Reformation. That led into the Reformation. The, the Reformation political or sacred elitist hierarchy was finally being challenged. Listen, Mr. Pope, you aren't all you are cracked up to be. These are the guy like Martin Luther. Do you know what Martin Luther said? How many have ever read Martin Luther? You need to read Martin Luther. You will laugh and you will smile. You'll probably get angry too, but that's okay. Martin Luther says this. He, he was writing a commentator a commentary on 1 Peter. He said, in 1 Peter 2.1, let's say. I don't remember the exact address. Peter says more in that verse than all the popes have said in their lifetime. That's the type of attitude he had. Amen, brother. <laughs> Obviously, he was a little harsh against them. This brought Calvin into it, Luther into it, the Puritans. All three of these are reformed ideas. The reformer said, listen, work is the work of God. Luther had the idea of a mask of God. As a Christian is working, he's working as God would be working. How many does that make sense? Absolutely. Calvin, Calvin tied um, that a person and his actions, it's just not the person's soul, but his actions are just as pleasing to God. Amen. It's not only who you are, but what you do that are pleasing to God. Luther, I just told you about the thing. And then the Puritans. The Puritans went to an extreme on this. And they literally godified work. Does that make sense? They held it up as a god almost and replaced God with work. They went too far. Although they had some good things, they went too far. The Enlightenment, the greatest affront to American Christianity was the Enlightenment. I get pushed back on this all the time, but it's true. It's frankly true. What they did is they put, the Enlightenment did, is they put human reason on the throne. God was relegated to the corner. Enlightenment brought about the monkey trials. How many remember them? God was on trial with human reasoning. Evolution won. Even though they didn't win that that debate, they won holistically. That's why today, there are even people in the pulpits today of evangelical church that believe in an old earth theory. In other words, God did not create creation in six days. It was eons. Because I have to make evolution work with it. That is a problem. <clears throat> Modernity today Max Weber. Max Weber says, listen, here's the reality. He, had a, he did what I just did. He did a whole uh, thesis and published it. His thesis tied the church to a vibrant economy. However, the Enlightenment seeded modernity with self-focused motivations within vocation. The reality is, he, Weber said, those that follow a Protestant view, in other words, evangelicals, Where the church grows in that era, the economy grows in that era. Where the church is losing people, the economy loses people. Do you know why? People are destined to be lazy. True? The thing that makes us not lazy is pleasing God. Therefore, if you love God and want to please Him, you're going to work. And you're going to work hard. I'm going to get that. And, and they show that in, in Europe, as the church diminished, so did their economy. I will tell you this, the church is diminishing today, watch our economy tank. It's gonna be this, you'll, you'll, you'll see it. There are erroneous views in this theology of vocation, state church, they were heavy handed. You will do this, I will make you do this. How many love those types of teachers? <laughs> How many rebelled against those types of teachers? That's exactly what happened to the state church. They were heavy-handed. Morality was legislated by the pontiffs. You will do this by the edge of the sword. Their motivation was not pleasing the Lord. Their motivation was, i got to save my life, so I have to lie. Death to all who disagreed, whether on the, the rack, the spear, whatever it was, on a uh, burned at the stake. If they didn't agree with the state church, they were put to death. It's all based on replacement theology or covenant theology. In other words, Jesus, God Almighty set up Israel as a theocracy, correct? Yes or no? Absolutely. Because the church has replaced theology in covenant theology, not in our theology, but in covenant theology the church has replaced Israel, therefore, the church is to be about theocracizing America because we have to be like Israel. We are the new Israel in their minds. How many understand that? There's a lot of stuff there, but the reality is the state church is based on the fact that we have replaced Israel. We have not replaced Israel. We are a people of God just like Israel is a people of God. And someday, God will save Israel. Amen. Romans chapter 11. Two-story view. It divides life into two categories. I have my church life, and I have my other life. The church life takes how many percent? You saw it? Three percent. The rest of my life is mine. 97%. How does that work? Religion is relegated to the upstairs. All other life is on the main floor. And what do we do? We hold our breath to go through the bottom to get to the upstairs. And now we can breathe. Let's go again, and we hold our breath and go through, or we just simply act like the world and become like the world while we're living in the world. How many understand that? And then when we come to church, we put our Christian life on. Your Christian life never leaves you. Amen? But this is a faulty view. Christianity is not merely what a man does with his solitude. It tells of God descending into the course of publicity, of history, and they're enacting what can and must be talked about. People of this world need people of the church to tell them about Jesus and about what he's done in their life. That's exactly what it's talking about. Clergy, lady. Religious work is greater than secular work. There's a really good German word for that, hogwash. That's baloney. It's nonsensical. Religious work is not greater than secular work. Religious work is all of our work. Clergy view themselves of greater importance. I'm not going to quote Sibius. It's It's literally, he says... I know the greater vocations are the priests and the popes and, and those of the church. And then there's all those other people, but they can get saved. Second class. Ridiculous. Nonsense. That came from the Middle Ages. Laity believe themselves to be second class. Let me ask you, just be honest. How many of you sitting in the pew right now have felt like in a church that you're second importance to the pastor or the elders. Have you ever felt that way? It's wrong. And however that made you feel with, I want to know. Because if I got to correct something I say, I need to. We are all in this together and we are all equal. Amen? It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It's why he does it. Ooh. Now we're getting to the motivation of why we work. Another problem we have is the greenhouse effect. This is the result of a two-story, result of also a clergy laity. We raise our children and we were raised in a bubble, an ivory tower, a shrink in the corner place. We were all secluded away from that wicked world, overly protected, and now they're adults, they can't relate. They have no idea how to have a conversation with anybody we got to get to church to talk because that's the only way i know how to talk is that a problem that's a big problem it's a huge problem it's especially a problem with the pastors that are coming in these pastors i'm not kidding you they grew up in a christian home went to a christian day school went to a christian college went to a christian seminary never worked a day in the world at all their entire life and they're going to go to a church and tell their people how to live what what? Are you nuts? God, how many understand that? Okay, I always understood that many in one certain party are like weird, have these crazy ideas in a political party. I, whoa, that, where did that come from? Like, hey, let's do a vending machine with <clears throat> drugs in it so we can help the addicts downtown. Is that crazy? It is crazy. Do you want know just as crazy? Let's keep our kids not to have any relationship in any place except for our little battle. And then when they grow up, then they can figure out how to deal with people. That's crazy too. It's just as crazy. Get them involved. There's things to do, like 4 H. Amen. Sports, get them involved, get them to rub shoulders with the world. They need to know how to talk to them and how to express their faith to someone outside of their bubble. Shepherding, and this, the ivory Towers, they all got this theological school, they're cool, they're neat, they're, they got all this stuff figured out in their head academically. Here's what one author says, Leith Anderson, I love him. He says, Shepherding without teaching produces well loved undernourished saints. Story time with Uncle Bill. If we get that here, fire the guy. Did you hear that? Teaching without shepherding produces lots of head knowledge that is inadequate to real life. A pastor is to be a shepherd and a teacher both. He cannot shepherd if he cannot relate. He cannot teach unless he has the tools to do so. Both are important. Monism, a lot of people go to their jobs thinking a person, uh, that the whole point of the job is to win souls for Jesus. That's my whole point. Listen, folks, your job is to serve and love others and give them the gospel. Yes. But if you don't love them and if you're not serving them, they're not going to listen to you. Because all, all they think that you think them as is a soul on a stick. A person is not just a soul. A person is both a body and a soul, amen? Anybody have a body here? Pinch yourself and say no. Ow, right? We all have a body and we have a soul. We're not just souls on a stick. We need someone to care for us. We need others to serve us. We can't live on our own. We need each other. Love, serve, and resurrection all of those have the idea of both body and soul we do not know what constitutes the body itself but whatever it is will constitute our resurrection body we will not discard the body the body is as important as the soul amen we are both body and soul the church must recognize and reject historical heresies that contradict the theology of vocation. So Christians can more effectively influence the world as they minister and serve in their God-given vocations, which are all important. The theology of vocation, that was all the negatives in the history of it. We're going to get through it, okay? Hang on. Christians with a biblical theology of vocation are similar in vitality to the keystone species. How many know what a keystone species is? Some of you do because you've seen this. This is important. Are you ready back there? Got to have this one on. This is so important. This is a scientist who took a certain species out of a culture and the culture died. That is just like we as Christians. When you take Christians out of the culture, what do you get? 2023 America.
1: Here's what it looks like. It was nirvana. He realizes these tide pools are a complete ecosystem, but in miniature.
0: This magnificent array of organisms. There were carnivorous gastropods feeding on barnacles. There were sea urchins
1: feeding on algae. There was a lot of pattern. For Bob, the tide pool is a natural laboratory. There are hunters and filter feeders, scavengers, and plants giving food and shelter. And among the mussels and barnacles, anemones and snails, a large predator lurks. Despite appearances, starfish are skilled hunters. Each of their arms carry eye-like sensors. Starfish use their tube feet to pursue prey. They can pry open mussels, devouring them in their shells. Here, Payne conducts one of the simplest experiments in the history of biology. He removes starfish from one tide pool, while leaving them in another. Month after month. Pain returns, clearing out starfish. And he sees the tide pool changing. There are more muscles, but less of everything else. Eight years later, the impact is dramatic. The mussels are all that remain. That indicates that the starfish have been preventing the mussels from taking over. The predator maintains the entire community from the top down. Without them, it all falls apart. In other experiments, Payne removes different species from the tide pools. But when he does that, nothing changes. The starfish alone hold everything together. So Bob christens them a keystone species. I knew that I had discovered something important. I'd changed the nature of the system. I used the line in George Orwell's Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more
0: equal than others. And that expresses the fact that all species don't have the same impact on the the system they're in. Species don't have the same impact. Did you hear that? When you take Christians out of the world, there is no one here to represent Christ and the whole thing falls apart. We are seeing this firsthand in America today, right now. We're seeing it. Christians with a biblical theology of vocation are the keystone species. So what is the theology of work? How, if, I, if I were to ask you who translated the Bible into translated the New Testament into English, you would give me one name. What was his name be? I'll give you a hint the reality is William Tyndale is said to have done it but you take the sawyer out the rancher out the weaver out the miller out the tanner out the goldsmith out the farmer out the inventor out the logger out the mother out the teacher out the smuggler out the typesetter up you would not have the New Testament it takes all of them working together to produce what God wanted to do and God's sovereignty does all this he uses everybody. You are just as important as the guy up in the pulpit. All of us are important. We realize that. That is the theology of work. What is the foundations of work? First of all, God works. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus is, is explaining to the Pharisees, listen, God at this moment is, is at work. Has always been at work. He will, and I will always be at work. He always works. He's all act. He pleasures in it. Genesis one thirty one says very clearly, when He created everything, when he, when he created the earth, or when He created the waters, it was good. When He created uh, the land, it was good. And the animals, it was good. But when He had all of it done in those six days, six days of creation, He said, it is very good. He pleasured in His work, in His act, Sometimes the word work is a bad word because it has the idea of laborious, laborious or sweating. God didn't sweat. God didn't labor in it. He enjoyed it. He loved it. Maybe a better term is God is all act. He never stops. Man also works. And he works before the fall. He was created to work. Genesis 2.5 said there was no shrub or bush in the land because there was no water to wet it. We all do that with our gardens today. And there was no man to cultivate it. He was created to work. He was part of the creation plan. Not only was He created to work, He was commanded to work. To subdue the earth. To have rule over the earth. To name the earth. Right? All those things. He was to feed Himself. He was also, by the way, uh, to cultivate the garden and keep the garden. He also was imaged to work. Where do we get our image from? What are we imaged after? We're the image of God, right? If God is all work and His very nature is work, then man is work, right? His very nature, part of Him is work. He loves to work. And I would argue this. We work because we imitate and serve the God who works. And we love it. That's what it was made for, designed for. Matter of fact, to be honest with you, what when God when man sinned, what did God effect affect when he cursed the ground? What did he affect? What did he say he affected? Exactly. He said this. He said, now, when you work, it's gonna be sweat and hard because of sin when you labor to the woman it will be in pain god went after their work why because they pleasured in it so much let me ask you this do we pleasure in our work or do we have to work if we have to work we have got to do some fixing if you will in our own lives of getting the right motivation to work for his glory We're not going to talk about the warning, not important. Everybody is called. We did this this morning in our church service. We're almost done. All people were given a calling. There's not a person in here who has not been given a calling. All people are gifted to that calling. Whatever that is, you know what? Young ladies, you can be a beautiful Cinderella if you want to. If that's your desire, do the best you can to be that Cinderella. Boys, don't you dare. You've been given a vocation that's specific and special to you. Do it to the best of your ability. God has gifted you to it. And then while you're doing that vocation, serve others as to the Lord. Love them, serve them. Because our, God, our, our calling as Christians is just love and so the Lord. Say, well, I don't know my calling. Here's, my, here's, here's the answer to that. Listen, you might not know exactly, exactly what God wants you to do in your life right now as a young person. But I tell you what, he does want every single person in here to faithfully obey him. And then you will know God's calling. Faithfully obey. Nothing is secular. There is no such thing as a secular job. It is sacred to every Christian. It is your ministry. It is your God-given ministry, whatever that job is. Everything we do will serve the God whom we love or else it will serve the idols that we love in His place. That is a damning quote from one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Bowder. There are problems with this view that we have to be very careful and be gentle with. Neo-Calvinism is a problem. We'll talk about that soon. The modern priesthood, these don't really matter. Okay, there we go. The Neo-Calvinists, most people that believe this view, I am not one of them, but most of them that believe it are covenant-minded. And this Neo-Calvinism is a covenant fighting. They do not believe in two kingdoms as Luther did. They believe in one kingdom, and they believe it is their job to set up the Earthly millennial kingdom on this earth. And they will do anything it takes to redeem every part of this culture. It is their job, they believe. Now, our job, according to the Bible, is to serve and to love and to give the gospel. Amen? It is Jesus' job to redeem. And it is Jesus that will redeem and will set up His kingdom. They believe that unless you add that our job is to redeem culture then you're not preaching the right gospel they believe that's part of the gospel the gospel is jesus died for our sins he rose again and sits at the right hand of god and if we put our faith in trust in him alone for our salvation he will truly redeem us amen that is the gospel it has nothing to do with eschatological issue Their job, they believe, is the tr- redeem transformation of human culture, academic or and Noah covenant. May, may, what they're saying is the church needs to become the church of the middle age and rule and reign with iron fist. That's what it's saying. How big of a problem is that? The issue before us are matters of life and death to the church of Jesus Christ. Every Christian, therefore, should be passionately concerned about them. John Frame He's just a retired theologian that retired not too long ago. Charles Spurgeon says it well: the whole thing in a nutshell. To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. We have to understand that, or we will adopt a secular view, a worldview. Everything is sacred. Everything we do is sacred. He puts it on his workday garment, and it is a vestment. To him, He sits down to his meal and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. I love that. I can't say it any better than that. Everything we do is sacred for God. Many Christians have adopted a secular view of vocation. Consequently, the keystone species is virtually gone and both the world and the church are suffering. As you can tell, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. This message must be heard. How? How? Well, first of all, the church needs to adopt, needs to junk. The secular view and adopt a biblical worldview of vocation. That's number one. Until we view everything as sacred, we're in trouble. We are not like the world, folks. I will tell you this. If we are watching more news than we are in our scripture or our sermons, you're going to have a secular worldview. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. The answer is not in a political candidate. The answer is the Word of God. The Word of God was taken out of our schools. Oh, hold it. We took the Word of God out of the schools. We did. We need to be involved in politics because that's our God-given job as a citizen. But politics will not fix it. God's word will fix it. It has to be. It has to be. Amen? All right. I will not show this ever again in this church, as far as I know. (laughs) This was the defense of the book that is going to, Lord willing, come out. But we're taking a hiatus right now (laughs) because we're tired of writing it. But folks, how many see the importance of the theology of vocation? It's a huge deal. Until we are Christians, are rubbing shoulders and, and impacting the world for Christ, what we see in 2023 with our president and our congressman and the school system and just go on down the road, all of that is going to get worse until God has a presence in this world. We are His presence. We must be in the world with that presence of God. Because how many remember, that's why I'm a dispensationalist, how many remember what's going to happen at the tribulation time? Is the tribulation time going to be the worst time this world has ever seen? Yes. Politically, Yes. Economically, yes. Physically, yes. Why is it the worst time that this world will ever see those seven years? Three and a half years are going to be the worst, but whatever. When is it going to be? Why? The church is gone. The Holy Spirit's gone. What do you expect? The same thing is happening now because the church is choosing to be Away from the world. And secluded in their corner. And they can talk about God in their corner. But don't you dare do that in the workplace. Oh my way. You have breaks. You can serve somebody at your break. And talk about God. I'm not saying shove scripture down his throat. I'm saying love them through his word. It's that easy. That's what Jesus did. And there is nothing illegal about that. Don't let your voice be hindered. Speak out because your Father is in heaven and has the victory already. Amen? All right. Rodney, I'm going to have you come up and close us in a word of prayer, if you would, please.
1: Father, thank you. Uh For these truths, Lord, that a lot of us did not know, Lord, it's, it's, it's very convicting to me, Lord, and, but to understand that our whole life is about glorifying you, whatever we do. You're calling, you're saving us, our life to this dying world is about reaching people, but serving people and loving them as God loved us. Thank you for this day and thank you for this study. In Christ's name, amen.